0: Kei mai koe ki tō tatou irirangi o Aotearoa. This is Our Changing World. I'm Alison Balance, and now, how buildings stand up to earthquakes is of huge interest to us. It's been very much on our minds since the Christchurch earthquake sequence began, leading of course to the demolition of many buildings, followed by extensive rebuilding. The University of Canterbury is well known for its earthquake engineering, and among its experts is mechanical engineer Jeff Rogers. Last year, Jeff won the Cooper Award, which is the Royal Society Te Aparangi's Early Career Research Excellence Award for Technology, Applied Science and Engineering. I'm off to ask him, how did we used to design buildings to withstand earthquakes, and what can we do differently now?
1: The thinking has been that in a large earthquake a building can't be designed to be entirely damage free, so it's been to accept that damage will occur and, and carefully manage where that damage occurs within the building. It's what's referred to as a hierarchy of strength, so making sure that the, the weakest parts are where you can tolerate damage and that that damage doesn't lead to the structure collapsing. And this was sort of termed the life safety design principle or the sacrificial damage approach and that's that's really been around protecting lives, preventing collapse and it, it has by and large achieved that objective very well. The downside is that it leads to widespread demolition. And, of course, the repair or the demolition and rebuild costs are are huge and the the downtime for the city is significant. So we've seen that in Christchurch, but it's also been seen in other developed places worldwide. Uh, Northridge in 94, um, that's an area of Los Angeles. Uh, Kobe in Japan in 95. And really the the research area accepts that a, a new approach is needed.
0: You talked about sacrificial elements, so what ends up getting sacrificed? What's What do you need to keep versus what are you able to lose?
1: So the key thing is around the, the horizontal elements, the, the beams that support the floors, um, where they connect into the columns, the columns being the vertical members that carry all the forces down to the foundation, that the beams are designed to be uh, to be damaged and start to, to give way at a force less than that which will cause damage to the column uh, because if you lose the column then you lose your primary um, gravity carrying system that goes down to the foundation. So it's very important to make sure that, that those um, columns remain undamaged and, and keep the building standing, carefully managing the, the design so that the beams will, will be damaged and, and, and yield and give way um, before they cause any damage to the columns.
0: So you're taking a different approach with several different elements. Do you want to describe how what you're doing
1: is different? So there's a lot of research worldwide on uh, low damage structural design methods and there's this underlying premise in earthquake engineering where strength doesn't equal performance. If you just put some bracing in and make a building more rigid, you actually significantly increase the acceleration that will be felt by occupants. So that has a problem in terms of the amount of force that everything has to be designed to transmit but also in terms of um, the accelerations which are felt by the occupants and the contents. So it's quite a difficult design balance. You look at the, the frequency of the way in which the ground typically shakes and the um, period of the building, and there's this, this complex interaction. And we can't modify the way in which the gap ground will shake. That's the, the hand that we've been dealt. But we can modify the way in which structures do respond to that shaking. And the main focus worldwide, um, there's a few types of different... Uh, anti-seismic design, so ways in which buildings can respond well in earthquakes. Things like base isolation are very effective.
0: Base isolation, that's what they've got at Te Papa in it Wellington?
1: Is, yes, so there's a few different things. There's the lead rubber bearings, um, which obviously Bill Robinson from Robinson Seismic was famous for. There's also things like friction pendulum bearings, which essentially use a, a concave disc with a, a, a puck in there, but like a, a hockey puck, which transmit forces but allow the building to slide um, so there's a, a few different specific designs in terms of how that isolation's provided, but the key thing is that there's a, an isolation plane where the building can basically slide horizontally independent of the ground. And that overall works very well. Um, there are some restrictions though, the building has to be a reasonable aspect ratio, like a, a very um, tall, narrow building isn't well suited to be base isolated uh, because of the overturning moment, that can, the, the isolators don't tend to cope well with uplift. A shorter and squatter building with a the wider foundation that's not as high, is a much better candidate for for base isolation.
0: So tape upper is perfect for that.
1: Tape upper is perfect, and it's also the thing with tape upper is also on a flat ground. So um, if a, for example on a hillside, uh, it might be hard to get a, a flat isolation plane that the building can say. Base isolation does work very well, but there are some buildings where it's it's not necessarily a good candidate. The other thing that's been a big focus of a lot of uh, research here in New Zealand and worldwide has been around uh, rocking systems. So having accepting that buildings will move, allowing them to move, but carefully managing how that happens. So it's a it's a very small amount of, of gap opening that occurs at structural connections. So rather than um, making them as one rigid block and, and forcing damage to occur when they move, it's to actually have a jointed system where there's, there's two different components there that are connected Basically through a steel tendon, and that can be, have a clamping force. So, in a low level of earthquake, the building responds basically like a traditional structure and as one continuous block. But then, in a larger earthquake, when a, a certain level of demand is reached, um, it can actually open up and have some some controlled motion at those at those joints, and that changes the period of vibration of the building. It, it lengthens the period and it it alters the way in which the the building is excited by the ground shaking.
0: So is that Better suited to particular styles of building. If you know, base isolation worked best on low squat buildings. What's this one good for?
1: It's good for a range of buildings. Um, everything from a few stories tall. It doesn't get, tend to get used for really tall buildings. Um, but anything up to sort of ten or twelve floors, or sometimes in some cases beyond that, um, it's it's really looking at just a, a way of having a building that can actually. Deflect and, and and move in an earthquake, um, but do so in a way that's, that's very low damage. The catch twenty two here is that the conventional wisdom, uh, the conventional sacrificial damage approach, that damage actually absorbs a lot of energy. So to to bend reinforcing steel and break concrete and, and do all that damage to the structure actually takes a, a lot of it's a lot of work to do that and it absorbs a lot of energy doing that. So if we take away that damage from a building, we possibly introduce a problem where the building sways too much. And it sways for too long. We don't get a lot of damping there. So, when you have a low damage structure, to then augment that with uh, energy dissipation devices. So, um, very carefully designed, um, reliable um, energy dissipation or damping devices that can sit in those connections where the structure moves uh, and absorb energy during an earthquake, but to do so in a way that's uh, very low damage, um, ideally completely repeatable and damage-free, such that uh, if one, after the earthquake they've absorbed a lot of energy, but they're in a position that they can stand up to the next earthquake without any problems.
0: So what kind of things are these devices?
1: Um, so there's a, a range of different things available. Um, one of the things that's been used a bit internationally is just a, a yielding steel component, so it's, it's kind of recreating the same sort of damage that exists, um, but doing so in a very, an externally mounted device that can be very easily unbolted and a replacement bolted in. So that would still require some repair after an earthquake, but it could be done very rapidly. There's also things I've developed. One was um, sort of building on the, the likes of the lead rubber bearings that um, was done at Robinson Seismic and um, ran a lead extrusion damper. So that's uh, a repeatable extrusion process of, of lead. It's a bit like if you make Play-Doh spaghetti or if you squeeze toothpaste out of a tube, that's the extrusion process. Uh, but doing that in a repeatable manner and doing that with a material that's much stiffer than toothpaste or Play-Doh and then just using that that extrusion process, the the force that you put in and the energy you expend forcing that play-doh out the the orifice. Um, The same thing can be done on a a much grander scale um, to absorb energy during during an earthquake.
0: So you're using lead instead of toothpaste? Is
1: that the idea? Yes, that's exactly it. Because
0: lead is moderately soft.
1: Uh, Moderately soft compared to something like steel, but significantly stiffer than something like toothpaste or play-doh.
0: And in that case... You had an earthquake. Your your lead, your toothpaste gets squeezed out. What do you have to do after the earthquake? Uh,
1: it's done in a re- reversible manner. So there's a basically a central shaft that runs through a device, and it's it's a reversible extrusion. So so it just
0: pushes it from one side to the other.
1: It does as the boom sways back and forward. Um, so it's still there, and it hasn't been pushed into another chamber or anything. It's it's ready to go. And and also looking at other things like um, some tension only bracing, which has a ratcheting engagement mechanism, and also some new design of, of viscous fluid devices. Obviously with viscous fluid devices they're used uh, a lot in things like vehicles, trucks and cars um, and there also there's a number of them available worldwide, specifically intended for structures. So what's the viscous fluid? It can be a range of things, it can be anything from a reasonably basic oil, um, a lot of them use a silicone fluid. It's basically the same way in your car suspension, that as you go over a bump that it absorbs energy, um, doing that on a, on a much bigger scale. The ones that have been used in structures, they generally tend to be reasonably basic damping behaviour. But if you look at a, a high-end mountain bike or a high-end race car, they have very specific damping characteristics to, to manage those forces in a very careful way. And that's some of the work we've done over the last few years is trying to say how can we customise that response of a viscous damper to, to try and actually optimise the structure.
0: So there's a sense in which you can think of that what you do is a bit like you know suspension on a mountain bike, but you're trying to provide suspension to an entire building.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and I think that's... I guess I have a unique position where I'm a mechanical engineer that works um, quite significantly in civil engineering applications.
0: So the systems that you've been involved in developing, you're based in Christchurch, there's an awful lot of earthquake rebuilding going on. Are these systems being used in any of the rebuilds?
1: Yeah, so there is quite a lot of innovation that's been adopted within Christchurch. Um, Base isolation has seen a a much bigger usage um, post-quake. Before the quake, Christchurch Women's Hospital was the only base-isolated building that we had in, I think, in the South Island. And since the earthquake, we're seeing much more of those. We're seeing uh, much more use of uh, both base isolation and also dissipative braces, um, so not just having a, a rigid steel brace in a building, but also having a, the brace, but having some sort of energy as a bit of element within that. Also things like rocking structures, rocking frame structures, Forte Health building is, is one.
0: Are they more expensive to build than traditional buildings?
1: That's, that's always a challenge. Um, the general feeling is that they, they may have a small cost premium but not much. Yeah, that, that is a big part of our research is to, to try and make sure that we don't just come up with some sort of gold-plated research solution which works great in a lab but isn't practical or economic. So that's, I guess, at the heart of a lot of what we do is, is making sure that things are pragmatic and, and reasonable and economic to actually see uptake.
0: Does it mean the buildings look any different from the outside? Could I tell, walking past, that they had these devices?
1: Not necessarily. Um, It doesn't have to be the way, although the one thing that's actually very interesting and certainly something that's really been fascinating for some of the international collaborators that have come to Christchurch is that in the wake of the earthquakes, there is more and more sort of celebration of the structural frame. Like some of the buildings on uh, Cambridge Terrace, for example, with the rocking frames, you go in and it's in the elevator um, lobby the entire rocking frame is visible, as as are all the dissipative elements. And that's fascinating for some of our international collaborators because normally it's a case of um, do what you can to make the structure as good as possible but hide it behind the partition walls and things. And I, I think that's probably just primarily due to our recent experience that the, the public actually I guess, feels safer seeing the, the obvious signs of the seismic bracing in a building.
0: Thanks, Jeff. That was Jeff Rogers. He's at the University of Canterbury and the MedTech Centre of Research Excellence. Cheers everyone, I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 25th of January 2018. We are on the web at rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. It's easy to subscribe to our podcasts. We are RNZ Our Changing World on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Radio Public and the RNZ app. And if you've got a moment, please rate and review us. Much appreciated. To find out what other podcasts RNZ has on offer, check out the podcasts and series page at rnz.co.nz. OK, that's it. Bye for now. Matewa.